Welcome to Fandom Power. Hey, welcome back to Fandom Power. And once again, we're back. And this is the first of our eight-part mini-series on The Fandalorian Season 2. Once again, I'm joined here in studio by producer Andy and all the way from Halifax, our good friend of the show, Hank McLaughlin. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Hello there. Well, guys, we've had a day to ruminate on it and uh, got a couple of viewings in, I assume. I did. Excellent. We're going to dive right in because there's a lot of stuff uh, to cover. We got uh, Chapter 9, The Marshal, written and directed by Jon Favreau with a runtime of 54 minutes. Uh, Quick episode synopsis. Quested by the armorer to reunite the child with its people, Din Djarin searches for information that might lead him to the location of other Mandalorian enclaves so that he may use their underground network to locate the Jedi. First thoughts, guys. What did everybody think? I talked about my fear that like there would be some sort of sophomore slump or something like how good season one was. Yeah. And I was, <laughs> I was blown away. I was like, how does this keep getting better? I like how, and it, it did not disappoint. Oh my goodness. Like right from the, right from the get go. Amazing. Like, like a, like a, a planet we've never been to identi- identified a city we've never been to. Yeah. Everything feels so familiar still. Like the street lamps remind you of earth the crazy graffiti and the uh it's just what an opening scene i kind of judge these things by the amount of smiling that i do it's same like when i go to a movie and i have to tell you like i was i was very aware of the muscular contractions in my face when it was <laughs> over right like i really really enjoyed this episode i know we talked in the season one recap, I'd mentioned that the gunslinger was probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite episode. But I have to tell you that Agreed. as of right now, it's the Marshall. I also agree. They've hit another level. Oh, for and, sure. For sure. And it, it, I'm, I'm just hoping it just keeps curving up because of this. Yeah. Fantastic. Open talk that finale. And this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. As you were saying, uh, Andy, good opener. And that was something I was kind of. I was mildly anticipating as the show started, I'm like, I wonder if this is going to give us a different opening credit sequence. And uh, I guess really that that hasn't really happened because there really is no opening credit sequence. No, they just kind of lean into it and then they don't stop. They just keep hitting you and hitting you and hitting you with more. Yeah. And more through that episode. I'll say one thing, uh, doing the research as I was putting my notes together yesterday after watching the, the first time around that. I was reading some um, some other articles just to sort of get a grip on what other people were saying, and plus I was kind of combing them because I was looking for some names that I wanted to pull because I couldn't couldn't quite think of them. But uh, there's actually a, a a camp out there that actually didn't really care for it, and they said that uh, the episode really leaned almost too much into the fan service nods, and uh, I gotta tell you, I. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't either. Some people need their art spoon fed to them. <laughs> um, I don't understand how that, that sort of mentality could be. You, certainly you can disagree with our point of view. But yeah, of that, course. That's a, that was a quality thing going on there, regardless of whether you're a Star Wars fan or like the old stuff, like the new stuff. Uh, and it's, it's also this, this thing you're seeing too. Like I, 
I had a friend of mine at work who barely knows Star Wars. Yeah. He'd, he'd read an article on some right wing kind of weirdo website that no, he sure, sure. saying that um Pedro Pascal was walking off set because he was disgusted with what was going on. And I was like, What where is this coming where from? Where are you reading this? Where are you reading this? So there's yeah. this like orchestrated negative thing. And I and I said this to my, my wife last night. And I think they're attacking Star Wars because they've been attacking Star Wars ever since the the new trilogy. Yeah, and it feels like I, I I feel strongly that Star Wars is our myth. Like we'll look back at it a thousand years, like it was Hercules. For sure, it's our contemporary mythology, and, and, it, and we're in it in real time. And I think that's it's such a powerful medium that people are actually getting their stupid voices heard by attacking. There's a YouTube channel that I follow, and uh, talking on that subject of the the vitriol uh, between the fan community it's i find it really difficult to consider yourself a fan if all you can spew is hate and rhetoric and uh, the host of the show actually he coined this term and i kind of kind of makes me chuckle but he refers to them as the fan bros <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> you know, that's funny as nothing hell. nothing better to do than to uh bitch and complain over something that's supposed to be fun and yeah but I guess that's the nature. I mean, we've been doing it for decades, right? I mean, my music is better than yours, and you can't tell me why because I just don't care, right? I mean, that's the it's totally the, insular. That's yeah, absolutely true. Everything exactly. is subjective. That's yeah. right. So why don't we uh, why don't we do a uh, episode breakdown and we'll kind of go through it uh, beat by beat, and uh, you know, when we hit we hit on something that uh, you feel you've got something to uh, to dive in on. Just jump in and uh, toss out your thoughts there, because I know that's kind of the way I made my notes was sort of <laughs> chronologically as I was watching it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess the, sh- the show opens up and we have uh, uh, Din Djarin and the child arriving on this unnamed planet. And like you say, Hank, it, uh, the cityscape is very familiar looking. And uh, I think the first thing that strikes me about this is we get this scene where he's walking down the, uh, I don't want to call it an alley because it is kind of lit. But it does have a back alley feel to it. It sure does. And the fact that he's walking into a back alley fight. Well, yeah. But before we get to the fight club, there's a, you know, they make a, a deliberate point to to show into the shadows. And you, you don't really get to see what's in there. But, oh, man. like Those the, little yeah, red the, eyes just peeking out. The little out. red eyes, I immediately thought off-world Jawas. Well, I kind of did, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were all wrong on that one. But, uh that whole like, oh my gosh, what is it? Um, and, uh, the graffiti on the walls, like there was like a, a stylized stormtrooper helmets. I saw that. Protocol droid uh, face. I didn't catch that until the second time around. I had yeah. to go back and look for that. Lots of orabash all over the walls and stylized stuff. It, like really. I really never cool picked. Shit. Did you try to? <laughs> I, I know uh, on some level you've probably done this, but when you see stuff in orabash, do you have this inclination to want to translate it? I, so in this, we're going to talk about it in a minute, but in this <laughs> scene where they show the hollow of the Death Star yeah. blowing up, I translated as much of that ticker tape that was running at the bottom. Oh, cool. Could, and we'll talk about that. In a okay, minute. that's great, because that's a level that I didn't get to, so I'm really excited to hear about that. So we get to the Fight Club, and uh, Din Djarin tells the uh, the Twi'lek doorman that he's here to see Gore Koresh. And, uh, Fun side note, yeah. the doorman is played by Isaac C. Singleton who is the go-to guy for Disney's Guardians of the Galaxy cartoon for the voice of Thanos. Oh, no nice. way. He did have a deep, booming yeah, voice. Yeah, he really yeah. did. Go He's, on in. Yeah, one of those voices, you're like, wait a minute, where have I heard that before? 
awesome. I find these guys that do animation, you know, I mean, they're so versatile uh, in the sense that they can kind of go and do whatever they want and still have relative anonymity. So it's kind of cool that you're able to pick that out. I heard a story once, just a side note, about 9-11 and the guy that played Batman on the animated series. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, my Lord. helping somebody, you know, dig out people or dig out Kevin Conroy? Kevin Conroy. And he yeah. had said, pass me the shovel. And somebody looked over and went, Batman? <laughs> and uh, I, I'd actually heard that that's a true story. He's um he's a super nice guy. The last convention that I went to, um, I went I visited his table for an autograph and I attended his panel and uh, there was a young gentleman ahead of me who I think may have been on the spectrum somewhere and he was so excited to meet to meet Batman and the kid is so nervous but he's it's an excited nervous so you you can't help but get caught up in that right yeah exactly and he he pushes the photo on the table and he's like Mr. Conroy I'm I'm so happy to meet you and like Batman the animated series was such a big part of my childhood and he's like well I'm I'm really glad to hear that and uh, as he's signing the autograph the kid says uh Mr. Conroy would it be okay if I asked you to do a line of dialogue from the show and he doesn't even miss a beat, and he immediately goes into "I am the face of the night," like, like just <laughs> while signing the autograph, not missing a beat. And I'm like, "Oh, chills down my back!" It was such a cool moment, and I felt so, so cool. Like that kid's gonna remember that forever, right? That's amazing thing for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. But that's the thing; these actors that they say. I watched. A, I know we're getting off topic here. We're supposed to be talking <laughs> Star Wars, but um, the whole cast of the Justice League Unlimited did an episode of, um, oh my gosh, Brian Paulson? Yakko Warner. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Rob it went Paulson. on his, Rob Paulson. Yeah, Rob Paulson's Talking Tunes, and they were, they were talking about their craft, and they, they were taking some fan questions, and, and it came up, like, what is the, some of the best advice about voice acting? And Kevin Conroy went back to, he's like, well, the first thing you got to remember is you're not a voice actor, you're an actor. And yeah. so, yeah, typically people who can voice act can act because they're the same thing. And on some level, it, it can be a little bit more difficult when you're in a booth and you've got nothing to act off of except the casting director who's giving you your direction. Okay, I need you to do it yeah. this way. I need you to do it I that way. I thought that like that and so, sort of the, the, the filming in front of a green screen with CG, you had to reach back into your childhood. Yeah, and there was no director and no, and you know you made that tree. Of course, uh, yeah, a battle fort, and you know, so I think that that type of acting is is almost purer. Yeah, it really is. Know? Yeah. So then we get to the uh, the big. I guess, I guess it's not really a big reveal, but you get that. Reminds me of the intro to Highlander when uh, the camera comes in at the beginning of the film and it swoops over the Madison Square Garden and down to the wrestling ring. Yeah. Yeah. And then it pivots around and it closes in on Connor McCloud. So. We get this kind of similar sequence where Din Djarin is descending into the fight club and we can see the ring and, and lo and behold, there's the big, from the trailer, the teaser trailer, the two Gamorians in, a, in this fight club going at it with their vibro axes. They're a lot better shape too than the... Uh, well, that was the, <laughs> that was the first thing I noticed. It's like, hey, yeah. these guys are <laughs> really good. It's <laughs> awesome, actually, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so this... This is something I know we talked offline about, and and uh, my first thought was, wait a minute, what's going on there? Because are they 
Like you saw that shimmer effect, and I'm like, okay, well, it's their. Initially, I'm like, it's just their vibro axes, and that's their yes. their way of, of their clashing together, and, and that's a visual for us to know that they're vibro axes. But then the more I watch the fight, I'm like, wait a minute, like they're hitting each other, and nobody's getting cut. So I'm like, are those personal shields? It's true. When you said that to me, the personal shield, I thought immediately of Battlefront 2 and the personal right. shield slot that you could have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I watched the episode in, with the uh, descriptive audio on. So it's yeah. somebody narrating the script along with the actual stuff that's going on. Right. And they sort of specifically say that these, not vibro axes, but that the energy bursts originate from the axe. Really? And then I was pausing that scene with the, the one cut. Yeah. And it does look like he hits some broad. He hits him like right axe. in the arm. Yeah, but it's broadside. He had some broadside. With I the guess so. <laughs> I don't know. I'm grasping at straws. I think but... in my own head canon, I'm making a play for personal shields, which sounds good to in, me. In my head, it's kind of a big deal because even though there's a visual precedent for this too, right? I mean, we've seen personal shields before in Star Wars, but we've yeah. only ever seen them on droidicas. Yeah. On destroyer droids. No, and, that's very true. And here's where I get kind of. This is where I'm going to lean into my inner Star Wars nerd because this is where I kind of get excited about stuff. Back in the role-playing game, personal shields were like, they were a no-go. There was talk about personal shields, but then they talked about the power consumption that these things would require to be effective, and then they were just too cumbersome for people to walk around with. Right. So I'm like, oh, that's really cool. So we're making the leap to, we've condensed the power source down small enough that we can hide it in our, our furry trunks now? like <laughs> Possibly on a belt, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you only need it for like three rounds. Yeah, exactly. Or until death. True. As was the case in this fight, because it was clearly a death match. So this whole scene had a, like a mob feel to it. Sure. I, and I had a, I had some questionable, like, do I think, do I call this guy a crime lord? We don't really know much about him. Is he just like a small, small mob boss? Like, is he just a local? Like, we don't really know anything about him. No, exactly. Except that he was voiced by John Leguizamo. John Leguizamo, the violator, amongst many, many other memorable Absolutely. roles. So Gore Koresh turns out he's an Abyssin, and we've seen Abyssins before. Yeah. Yeah, Cantina. the Cyclopean uh, uh, character from the Cantina back in episode four. Although that guy was way more, I don't want to say horror-inspired, but he was a lot, uh, a lot more furry and maybe a little... Uh, he certainly did not look as refined as this guy did. No, this guy may possibly part Abyssin. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. So Gore Koresh uh, basically has a, a conversation uh, about the fight with Mando, about betting on the fights. And, you know, if they win, he'll give him, uh, if Mando wins, he'll give him the information. But if he loses... He wants Mando's shiny Beskar armor. And there's a point there, I think, that he's he makes a point of saying like that the value of Beskar is on the rise. Yeah. It's so rare. So it's almost like it's the platinum of this galaxy now. You know, like there's Imperial credits, there's probably Republic credits, there's some yeah. sort of type of monetary system. But in the underworld, like, it looks very much like Beskar is the sought-after currency. Yeah, and I mean, go back to season one, to the interaction with the client. And I mean, you've got the, the Comptono, which is full of these ingots. And I mean, they're, they're pressed bars with a, with a government logo on them. So, I mean, Absolutely. yeah, they must have been using them as currency on some level. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. So I guess, you know, speculation, uh, as we get further into what's happened to Mandalore over the years, maybe we'll figure out, like, 
where did this stuff come from? Like, is Beskar like, is Beskar a mineral that's only found on Mandalore and that now it's been taken all over the place? Strip mined by the Empire. Yeah, yeah. Is it like, is it like the kyber crystals of Ilum and how they were all consumed in the construction of Starkiller Base? Yeah. Certainly a strong indication in Rebels that whatever Beskar armor exists. Yeah. After what the Empire did when they turned Sabine's weapon on. Yeah. Is going to be very finite. I guess so. Uh, they, they certainly seem to have, and I think that might be the the siege of Mandalore that we don't get to see in Rebels. The yeah, you know, when the Empire turns the weapon on to them full blast, even though it's assumed that she destroyed it. Yeah, what did uh, what did Moff Gideon he called that something the Night of a Thousand Tears? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so I am definitely looking forward to seeing that tale recounted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, Din Djarin being the, the man of, I don't want to say principal, uh, but the man of honor that he is, uh, says he's prepared to pay for the, for the information. But that doesn't sit well enough with uh, Gore Koresh, and uh, it very quickly becomes a, a bit of a double cross as they, uh, they all draw down on him, uh, Gore and his goons. But not before wasting one of the Gamorreans in the ring. That's right. To ensure, well, he's almost, it's almost like, because he says, I bet you that guy will die in a minute and a half. Yeah. And, and he's making his bet didn't true. take the bet, he ensured that he won the bet. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then the next scene is so, for me, when he pushes the, the whistling birds button and, and arms them, for me, that's so strong because the child, you know, we saw it in the trailer, but the child closes the pram. Yeah. Canopy. And so that, that shows me now that those two are getting used to each other. Yeah, for sure they are. They, like it's a level of experience to their relationship. The kid knows what's up. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's very cohesive for me. I loved that little bit. Yeah. And I mean, when you say that, I I mean, that, that kind of ties in with uh, one of the points uh, from later in the episode when, uh, you know, he, there's a throwaway line where he says, Oh, he's seen worse. (laughs) Yeah. I did write that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, safe to say that Gore Koresh does not, uh, get away with Din's armor. <laughs> uh, and as you say, Whistling Birds uh, displayed once again. I think this may have been a more effective use of them Certainly. than we previously saw. Oh, yeah. He was broke. he was completely, uh, you know, out of his depth on that one anyway. Absolutely. But that was a great uh, beat to launch into the first big action sequence uh, of the episode, if you don't include the death fight between the two Gamorians. But... Uh, once again, Din Djarin's uh, unique combat style on display. Oh, 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 it was so good in this scene. He got punched twice in the head, and it looked like, not on purpose, but that the character punched him in the head, hurt their fist. Yeah. He punched him in the head a second time, his head went back, smacked the guy behind him. Yeah. Head, and the third time, he leaned into it and headbutted the The deliberate headbutt. Oh, it was a, that, that was awesome when he headbutted his fist. Oh, yeah. my God. I was 5.30 in the morning the first time I watched the episode, and I was trying not to wake the neighbors. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then, I mean, to have his blaster uh, knocked out of his hand and then have to go back to uh, the good old trusty Vibroblade and, uh, hey, Vibroblade for the win. (laughs) Yeah, and if you notice, both those characters that he Vibroblade, the one was a stab and then the other one was a throw into the chest. They were both Zabra. Yeah, okay, so that's. You would ask me if I'd picked out the Zabrax, and I'm like, no, I was just, I, I don't think I did. I was too busy was trying to take everything else in. Zabrak, and I yeah. was just like, all that, the, those cuts, like the, the, the Twi'lek doorman and yeah. the, the Abyssin mob boss, and the, like these things are, are, 
making it feel so cohesive and deep for me. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've talked about it before and how the... Uh, and I mean, Star Wars has always had a reputation for having a world that looks lived in. Yes. And uh, this, man, like, uh, better than any of the sequel trilogy films have portrayed, does this really double down on that idea that this is a fully realized and populated galaxy of all different species and all different cultures, and it's all on display for us in this show. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, so Gore Koresh, realizing that this isn't going to go in his favor, makes a run for it, and uh, out to the street, and it's kind of cool. It had that, uh, for me anyway, there was this, like, almost this Friday the 13th moment, you know, like the kids are running for their lives, but Jason never runs. He just walks with a purpose, Yes, (laughs) you know, and you think, man, he should have a pretty sizable lead on him, but no, here comes Mando and uh, hits him with the zip line and strings him up on the light pole. Which is a little bit of a callback to the first episode. Uh, To the first episode of of season one, where he zip ties him and pulls him back in the bar. Oh yeah, very much. Yeah. And it sort of foreshadows Boba Fett with the, uh, the way Boba Fett uses the same weapon to uh, ensnare Luke in Return of the Jedi. Yeah, very much so. A little drop there. But then there's this really interesting uh, exchange, and I guess this kind of talks a bit more about the uh, the character and sort of the 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 principles and the, the code, at least where, and I'm not going to say Mandalorians are concerned, but where Din Djarin specifically is concerned, where it's like, tell me what I want to know. And uh, Gore Koresh says there's another Mandalorian on Tatooine and uh you know like if I tell you this you know you promise you're not going to kill me and I mean he very specifically says you will not die by my hand oh yeah you know so I mean it, it there's still that hint of like I've lived my entire life as a bounty hunter and I'm not above wasting somebody to get what I want no absolutely if anybody ever says that to you in real life run <laughs> <laughs> yeah really yeah, so he shoots out the uh, the streetlight with the information that there's a Mandalorian living on Tatooine, apparently in a town called Mos Pelgo. It's nice. a new name, a new name in Star Wars. Apparently all the cities on uh, Tatooine are a Mos something or other. Yeah, it's got to be a, a native term for town or city or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look into it more. So... And we understand now at that point that these red eyes were not Jawa. No, yeah. they were definitely not Jawa. And And again, though... You know, they've established it in that, that opening shot that we're not really sure what they are, and they, they, they kind of leave that to mystery for the, the yeah. remainder of the sequence, which I'm like, oh, couldn't we see at least one of them? <laughs> Maybe Jawas are devouring them. <laughs> Maybe yeah. Maybe yeah, yeah. Jawas. So then we have this, you know, uh, return to the center of the Star Wars galaxy, as it were, and I don't mean Coruscant, but uh, where it all began, back to Tatooine. So good. Yeah, so I was, I, I was really surprised to see... Uh, that he landed in Mos Eisley, and we get to revisit um, Pelimato. Docking Bay 35. Yeah, so we get to revisit Pelimato, and they have a moment of, you know, hey, we're buddies now, and uh, everything's cool. And, uh, you know, there's a nod to Din's character development from over the course of the first season where his attitude towards droids yeah, has she's now... She's like, no, no, he hates your kind. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, maybe he's all right with your kind now. Yeah, so yeah, clear, clearly that shifted, though, right? Yeah, it's totally because of, I think 
his experience with with IG88 or sorry IG11 my bad yeah. in the in the finale we all uh, know certainly influenced <laughs> and it shows that he's you know he's willing to change and grow because he's had that no droids thing since child yeah absolutely and that one one droid is like influenced his opinion so that's nice to see that he's a, a, a malleable character yeah and i mean the pit droids serve a purpose i mean they're still you know, the, the three stooges personified and that's, that hasn't changed. So that's kind of a nice little, like, Oh, a little nod. And that slapstick wasn't over the top and it worked for me. It was, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, it was totally fine. And I mean, she was very consistent with her characterization, uh, from her previous appearance. Although I think she had a little more hair this time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> still, I really go ahead. Still enamored with the child. Yeah. I was going to say, I really love that part where she's like, Oh, do you want me to look after this little ball while you go off? adventures if it ever pods or bonds i'll take one (laughs) yeah but i don't mean it but really i do exactly (laughs) so yeah um then comes your next deep cut well this is it too right because now din is like hey apparently there's another mandalorian living out here and pelly makes a makes an overture about hey since the fall of the empire it's been crazy out there i don't leave the city so i don't know and he, he passes by the, the word of Mos Pelgo, and she's like, whoa, haven't heard that name in a while. And the map comes from the actual R5-D4 droid. Well, this is it too, right? I like, think oh. we confirmed that in those photos I sent. Yeah, I mean, there is no, there was no doubt in my mind. So when yeah. she's like, hey, R5, and the droid rolls over and like, oh, red and, and white astromech with the squared, uh, the squared head? And if anybody didn't notice, the uh, I, I I took a screenshot of the explosion that happened. Yes, the and then there's a there's an the oil big leak grease stain. From the exact same. Yeah, thing exactly. So yeah, one hundred percent. So there, yeah, again, like you say, deep cut for the fans. And again, so this is going back to what I was saying before about these these other uh, uh, journalists or reviewers who are who are really being critical of these things and yeah. saying that it's you know the the fan service is is too much and i'm like no no it's not no, not for no, me it's, it's it's not Go and on. i i i you'd have to be a super fan to catch it all yeah and so i don't and i and i don't get this or like super fans that wouldn't enjoy that so who are these people that are saying it's it's too much yeah 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 the yeah. one review i read said it won't come into its own until it stops being a star wars show but it's a star wars show yeah, that's so crazy. Like, it's within this galaxy, so. It's like saying I yeah. don't like it because I love it. Right, right, yeah. right. You know, it's almost like the, uh, I hate to say it, but we're kind of crossing into that uh, Trek territory where, like, you know, everybody is critical about every uh, Trek series since the original from the 60s, right? And it's like, well, this isn't this isn't Star Trek. Uh, well, actually it is because... Right. It's got the During name the, on it. the whole thing with the Last Jedi, I reminded so many people in message boards and YouTube forums and all these crazy things that we don't own Star Wars. No, George Lucas never had a thought in his head about what fans wanted when he made the original trilogy. No, and I think that's the thing. Most right, most artists, it. most visionary artists, they are not making art uh, for the appreciation. They're making it because there's something that drives them to want to do it. Exactly. And if you happen to like it, amazing. But Great. If you don't, yeah. Shut up. <laughs> I know we're seeing a lot of the, a lot more of that now. And we hear that a lot more often as like directors and, and producers who are saying like, I wanted to make a movie uh, that would be something that I would want to go see when I was a kid. And, and I can appreciate that. I think that there is an element of that. But like you say, we don't own it. I mean, we 
we embrace it and we we covet it like it's ours, but ultimately it's not ours. And and to use the I guess the comic book analogy, it's like you know, the stuff that comes after does not negate the stuff that came before it. So that stuff still Absolutely. exists. And Absolutely. you you can go back and reconsume it and love it for what it is. And you can choose to omit the stuff that you don't like about it. It's oh, okay. Yeah. Nobody's, nobody's telling you, you know, what kind of fan to be. Be the fan you want to be. Yeah. But Perfect. at the same time, don't, don't come down on somebody else's appreciation for something that you don't like. And that's what I almost see is more than like, this thing is bad quality or I didn't like this about it. It's, it's more of a, like an attack on the people who do like it yeah. than an attack on the actual, yeah. oh, I lost my word. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. I, I think I know where you're going with that. I had the same conversation about the, the lady Ghostbuster movie, you know, like yeah. people, people that really, really attack that one for what it was. And I'm like, what, what, what's wrong with you? Like, this is going to be, there's going to be like a bunch of little girls out there and they're going to be, this is my Ghostbuster movie. Like this one was for me. For me, this is, it's, it's almost too deep for the show, but, but yeah, it's the same thing with racism. I don't understand what it takes away from a person to, to give something else to a person to elevate them to your level. Yeah. I don't understand yeah, yeah. what it costs your soul to make yeah. other people equal. Well, that's a, that is a discussion for a whole other show. That's for sure. Yes, sir. Anyway, let's get back on to uh, what we were going <laughs> Where were we? Oh, yes. We're back on Tatooine. And uh, R5 gives us a nice little hollow map, which I thought that looks pretty cool. And uh, we get to see, again, references to here we are in Mos Eisley. Here's Mos Espa. And this is where Mos Pelgo used to be, but it is no longer charted on the map. And I thought, you know, if I was a uh, retired or uh, infamous bounty hunter and I didn't want to be found, there's a pretty good place to hide out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somewhere that doesn't exist on a map. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, hey, we got to get there. So can we borrow the speeder bike? Sure, sure. And uh, we get another beautiful sequence of uh, crossing the desert. Complete with all the inhabitants. Yeah. So uh, did anybody pick out the Bantha skeleton laying there? Yes. Yes. I thought that was pretty cool. And... This really kind of touches on one of the things that I've really, really enjoyed about this show. And I guess I was thinking about this in context of when I said that The Gunslinger was probably one of my favorite episodes. And that one of the reasons why was the interaction between Din Djarin and the Tusken Raiders. That yes. he had a some form of a relationship with them, whether it's just an understanding, but... Or something else. But he had this relationship with them where they didn't immediately try to kill him. Yeah. I and, got that a lot more from this episode. Oh, my because God. He actually, now he speaks the language. He interacts with the massives. In fact, that one yeah. massive comes up to him like it knows him. Yeah. He it under the chin and stuff. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's spent, in my opinion, he's spent a significant amount of time with Tuscans. Yeah, well, I mean, he said at the beginning of the episode, he's like, I've spent much time on Tatooine. I'm not aware of any other Mandalorian. Well, like, really, how much time have you spent on Tatooine? Exactly. And what were you doing there that you, you know, were you embedded with a Tuscan tribe for a while? Like, what was going on there? <laughs> Great place to hide as well. Yeah, yeah. But I, I thought that was cool. And, like, you know, going back to the Tuscan Raider thing, that the language issue, the thing, that's not an issue, sorry, the language thing, that it's a... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a combination of vocalization and hand signals. Yes. That's super cool. Like somebody's put a lot of thought into this. 
Oh, it was amazing. And it just adds another layer to them not just being those, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now there's society behind that. And that's, yeah, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself because I kind of saved it to the end, but I'll, I'll kind of lean into that a little bit too. Like, I just love how this episode really takes one of those. I mean, we've seen them throughout the 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 trilogies because they did make an appearance in The Phantom Menace. And, but again, they were this sort of nameless, faceless, yeah, antagonistic. Just, just a right. little two-second cameo. Yeah, camped out on the ridge there at turn whatever it was, yeah, taking, yeah, pot, taking shots. pot shots. Taking pot shots at racers. Man. Yeah, but then it's yeah. like... Later on in the, uh, oh, you know, I'm going to hold off on that because I just, I, we'll, we'll get there shortly. There's a line in season one, I can't remember what episode it is, but it, it's probably the gunslinger where I think Jake Cavanaugh's character says something about them, you know, attacking the natives and, and, and uh, the Mandalorian says, well, to them, they're the natives. Yeah, that's so right. I got the vibe from this episode, the, the old Western vibe where yeah. the... The, uh, Me too. The indigenous people have to work with the cowboys. I almost wrote a line. Yeah, I almost wrote a line. Indigenous peoples, and I'm like, is that the point I want to make? And I'm like, I'm not sure if that's the point I want to make, but they sure are portrayed that way. Yeah, certainly got that vibe. And uh, as a half yeah. indigenous yeah. guy, I totally got that vibe. Yeah, totally okay with it. No, totally. So at this point, Din Djarin and the child they they ride out across the desert. They have their uh, their overnight meeting with uh, what I guess is a patrol of Tuscans. It's only like three or four guys. Or just a camp out. Yeah, maybe it was like a an outpost or something. Because later in the episode, we get to a point where there's a much larger uh, community that we visit. But um, arriving at uh, Mos Pelgo, really, I was expecting, you know, if something that's been wiped off the map, I wasn't sure what to expect. I, w- I was kind of thinking, oh, is it going to be like bombed out, blown out buildings? But it wasn't. It was like this little, you know, it's like uh, driving through like, uh, you know, any small town and kind of rural anywhere and having a couple of buildings. You know, there was a couple moisture evaporators and then the this sort of downtrodden, you know, look on everybody as he rode slowly through town. Nobody making eye contact. That for me was that was almost the best Western stroke they've done yet. Yeah. 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 Uh, the equivalent of the character riding into town when the stranger comes to town, all the townsfolk, like there's, there's shutting the shutters, but some of them are like leering at them. And it's, so it's this, you get the stranger riding into town on the horse so strongly. And then he walks into a saloon and talks to the bartender. (laughs) And I'm just, I'm so giddy. It's, it's unbelievably good. But at the same time, a lot of those buildings had a very portable feel to them. Yeah, they did. Like, Like they almost like they were on like, uh, like uh, platforms of some yeah. kind, yeah. Like they weren't meant to be permanent structures. That's entirely possible too. And I mean, when they talk about uh, Mos Pelgo being a, a mining colony, well, I mean, you know, if you've ever been to any of these big mines and how they start, like there's like the mining company generally will put on like accommodations and stuff like outbuildings. Yeah. You know, and I mean, in, in the 20th century, like even in my uh, previous experience in the military, like, Sea containers or modified sea containers in place of buildings, you know, are common, right? When we're deployed somewhere. So that really suggests that portability aspect that you talk about. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, going into the saloon, we get another little dose of, uh, of, of Tatooine lore when we're uh, met by a weekway bartender. Oh, yeah. 
I didn't realize that Weequay spoke basic. <laughs> also fantastic. Apparently a lot of aliens in this show speak basic, which I thought is that's kind of nice. Cause... Probably a good thing for us. Sure, sure it is. Um, and I know I didn't, Andy, I think you picked up on this. Uh, bartender is played by W Earl Brown. Yeah. Also of Deadwood fame. Yeah. So very cool. So somebody apparently, somebody on the production really likes Deadwood that they want to pull, you know, two actors from that show, uh, forward into this. That's a great show. Yeah. Yeah. So then we go through the whole line of questioning again. I'm looking for a Mandalorian. Mm, I don't know what a Mandalorian is. Well, he looks like me. He's like, Oh, you mean the Marshall? What? Your marshal's a Mandalorian? Your marshal wears Mandalorian armor? Why don't you ask him yourself? Oh, yeah. And then we get the first big reveal of the show. I did pause it right there live and yeah. stare at it for a minute. Yeah, what did you think of the uh, of the reveal? Everything about it was so good. Like, cinematically, it was framed in the center of the door. Yeah. Uh, and Mando's body, like, silhouette in, in the right foreground fading to the side as we sort of close in on it. Yeah. Uh, immediately you, you go, that's Boba Fett's armor. There's no if, ands or buts. And, but, but then because I had paused it, I was allowed to look at it a little longer yeah. uh, than the beats they allowed. And you could just see that it's so much more worn. Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. It's, it's partial armor. It's not the complete armor. It's it, uh, for the first time I sort of realized that the shoulder pads are attached to a tunic that goes over the jumpsuit. I yeah. I actually realized that before. Um, it looks like it's been in the belly of a sarlacc, if you will, a little, little uh, digestion going on. Yeah, on yeah. All worn. And uh, I don't think I had to go back and look at other photographs from the films of Boba Fett to see the. Um, it's funny you say that. A lit up panel. Yeah. Orabash and numbers on his chest that I'd never noticed. That little LED or almost whatever it is. Years. Yeah, I'm I <laughs> agree. I mean. I was aware that the slots were there, but I didn't realize that they were a lit panel of some kind. <laughs> I didn't either. I yeah. looked back and there, I saw an image from Empire Strikes Back where he's talking to Vader. And when you zoom in on it, yep. you can see it. But it's funny because like you say, going back and looking at at, at uh, sort of photographic record of the character, I didn't realize how much of Boba Fett's look is inherently like, this is going to sound corny, but I'm uh, it's almost Jim lee Ask with the amount of pouches and oh, pockets, yeah. and how much oh, of yeah. how much of Boba Fett's look is inherently reliant on the fact that he's kitted out with all these pockets and pouches. Because really, his armor is a pair of van braces, a chest and a back piece, shoulder pauldrons, a helmet, and knee pads. It's That's nowhere right. near as complete as Din Djarin's. No, and it's. Everything else is uh, like almost like uh, just accessories to yeah. help him do his job. Like so, you could see that that uh, Cobb Vanth isn't, and I kept calling him Cobb Vance in the last episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cobb Vanth uh, is not wearing his belt. He doesn't have his blaster. No, He's, no, not at all. One knee pad. He has one knee pad on. Yep. But uh, his own boots and the red tunic underneath, and it's all so it. He looks skinnier too. Right? Oh, does he like, ever? Yeah. Now next to Din Djarin, you see he's actually quite the big yeah. man. He's, he's like a you're a bigger guy, right? You're not quite filling that out there, Marshall. <laughs> and it's it's kind of great too. I hope you grow into that. <laughs> yeah. So they have this interaction where you know come and have a drink with me, and and Mando's like I've been searching for you for what two parsecs or something. And yeah. Yeah. Mm. And uh, he's like, really? He's like, I never met a real Mandalorian before. As he pops the helmet off and, and Din Djarin instantly is like, 
hand it over. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a pause there, right? He yeah. pauses and it goes, it speaks to what you said in the, in the, uh, when we did the season one recap. Yeah. How much acting you can get out of an emotional. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Helmet. And he, he takes a breath there. He goes, this other Mandalorian just took his helmet off. And there's an instant moment of that's not a Mandalorian. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. on a faceless mask. And it, I'm like, holy cow, that's nuanced as hell. Yeah. It's really well done. Like you're, I'm imagining like what's going through his mind. Is he thinking like I need to like murder this guy right now, or do I need to suss him out a little bit more? Like he's certainly about to. You can imagine sort of the emotional turmoil that he's he's feeling right now towards what he's just observed, right? Given how how difficult it was for him just to allow his helmet to be taken off by a droid. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So. There's this conversation, and the conversation goes south pretty quickly, but the way that it's done is just so slick and smooth and very, like, everybody's just being cool and nobody's getting all hot and heated about it. Think of the perfect uh, actor to play the marshal in terms of his 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 experience maybe as a Western sheriff. Well, isn't that know, the but, joke, right? That like, oh, Timothy Oliphant playing another another Western guy, another it's, another marshal. So good. Yeah. The way the way like I have a I think there's a line I have here. I gotta just find it for a sec. He basically says, uh, "What can I do for you, stranger?" He says the most Western sheriff stuff. Yeah. That you could ever say, and he's got a few lines throughout this that are like very integral to to what's going on but that exchange is so good he's super confident that he's he's not even wearing the helmet he's still super confident oh yeah like almost to the point of cockiness yeah he's about to get killed yeah yeah and i <laughs> and i mean okay so th- then it comes down to the showdown part it's like oh we're gonna do this right here in front of the kid and then the line yeah well, he's seen worse that was one of my favorite lines as well and then he stands up and very Western, like kicks the chair back. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. But in that moment, my mind, like just from the visual that I'm getting, it's like if these two are about to draw down, Vanth is going to die. And it's not yes. it's not because that Din Jaren's name is on the show, The Mandalorian. But did you see how floppy his holster was? Oh, absolutely. There's a little few little things. His hand twitching. Sure. His his he twitches the the cheeks in his like his cheek like like a kind of a nervous tick in his face. It's super almost subtle, like he's, uh, no, he's about to die. What's the Clint Eastwood I, I movie? I even wrote that down. Actually. All good and bad and the ugly. Yeah, it's almost a direct callback to the good, the bad, and the ugly in that sense, where it's like the you can yep. you can hear it right. But yeah, I mean, I'm looking at him and it, the way that his holster is flopping around on his leg. I'm like, man, if you're going to quick draw from that, you are going to have some serious trouble. <laughs> I wrote down that there's a great shaking in the village, almost like an earthquake that rudely yes. interrupts the marshal's premature death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was saved by a crate dragon. Well, see, this is it. And, and, Ultimately, we we do come to realize that that's what it is. But it, when it started shaking, I'm like immediately my head goes into it's Tatooine. Is that a sandstorm? Because mm. you saw the you saw the windmill pick up speed. Right? I'm like, oh, there's the prevailing wind. It's got to be a sandstorm. It was a little not. I mean, it it shook. It kind of rose like it yeah, rumbling. And I thought sand crawler. So did I. And that was my next thought. Is like, is that a sand crawler rolling in? Like, what's happening now? Uh, and then we get the. Uh, it's almost like. Uh, 
it was almost like a scene from from Tremors. I got the exact same vibe. There's a scene where it grabs a cow in Tremors, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we see at the end of the street, the only street in town, uh, <laughs> the Bantha uh, tied off to the post there, and then whoop, and gone by what we assume is a great dragon. Although at that point, I have to I have to admit, my preconceived idea of what a crate dragon was did not match the visual that we saw so i was I, still there was yeah. still a, an element of like what is that uh yeah, even though we'd seen on it wikipedia and i'd sent you those photos from before the show and i i guess canon confirmed that there are two types of great dragons. yeah, I yeah. Don't know how new that is and i don't know how reliable wikipedia is they're a great bunch of guys over there but uh yeah it seemed to confirm that there is a a canyon crate with yeah. legs and arms like we're familiar with and that there's the greater crate which is the the, the uh, carcass from a new hope and and the right. carcass of this thing why well, I, I go back to i guess knights of the old republic where there's a there's a quest in that game where you actually go after a crate dragon that's and right. so that's where i'm like oh crate dragons have legs and they look like big lizards and and so mm-hmm. i'm like okay that's what they look like and in my head that's what the way it's been now for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's but then you, <laughs> you did send those photos and I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, yeah, the original crate dragon skeleton was very serpentine and there, there were no legs. It was just no. like a big toothy snake. Yes. Yeah. So it, it does make kind of sense that they've gone back to that original reference and, and that's it. Even with the animated series, they, they went back to this sort of drawing board, if you will. Yeah. You look at Rebels and they've redesigned the chicken walkers. They re- redesigned and not, not redesigned, but use the original designs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there could be some of that bleeding in, you know? Quite possibly, for sure. You're listening to Fandom Power. So they decide that, you know, they, maybe we can work something out, I think was the line. Yeah. After the uh, the Bantha gets eaten. And mm. it, it comes to, yep, uh, help me kill it. And if you can help me kill it, I'll give you the armor back. And Din agrees to that. But they know that they can't do it alone. So that means we have to go and revisit the Sand People. And now we get to that scene where it's a much larger... We see that there's a larger community, more like what we saw in Attack of the Clones when Anakin uh, went after his mom, right? And this is another reason when I see when I say the the sort of indigenous analogies that they're they're doing that Western trope of like the shaman is giving the guy something to drink and yeah. to adhere to their customs, and so that all lends itself to that stuff. Uh, I really related to that scene. Uh, side story: when I was overseas, when I was still in the military. And I was offered tea by the Afghans. And it's like, just take it and drink it. You don't have to like it. Just take it and drink it. Because if you mm-hmm. don't, you're you're being disrespectful. Yeah. Temple <laughs> of Doom style. Yeah, very much so. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead, point Andy. From that, as 
Vanth and uh, Din Djarin are going across the desert. Yeah. Vanth's bike. Yeah, we can't really talk about this scene without touching on that. Uh, and again, this is another fan service moment where it's like, I don't know about you, but I actually sat forward in my seat when I saw the turbine spinning as it kind of pulled up into view. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Somebody, somebody, I'm not going to say that Vanth did it because we don't know that. No. But somebody has taken the engine from Anakin Skywalker's pod racer and converted it into a swoop bike? That was my immediate thought. And I don't want to break anyone's hearts, but I paused that and then I called up as many images of Anakin's pod racer as I could. Yeah. And it's very, the the, the yellow fins are bigger and thicker and spaced differently the uh the, the sort of steel tendril at the back is longer on anakin's and sort sure. of stubby on his it might just be a design thing maybe uh, i could show you that stuff after i kind of saved that for 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 this but oh that's cool it's i got that vibe as well so whether it's the actual pod or whether it's not it's certainly a, a callback to the tatooine was famous for pod racing yeah absolutely it, it also felt like the uh the Marauders, the swoop bikes from Empress Nest. Yeah, very much uh, so. And it certainly, uh, yeah. I, you know what? Let's call it Anakin's Pod Racer because it just feels good in my belly. Well, on another similar note, I almost thought when he let. Sorry, this is going backwards, and I don't mean to. But when uh, Din landed at Mos Eisley, it to me, it's like it's probably a starship engine. But Peli Motto was working on a big engine. I'm like, is that a is that a is that a pod like pod racing engine? What I is that? that too. It was sort of sparking like that. Yeah, and yeah, if yeah. We can go just one for like almost five seconds before that. Just as he comes around a crag in the ship, yeah, and you see that familiar view of Moss Eisley's from a distance. Yeah, I think he comes over the crag where Luke and Obi Wan were standing. Oh, we cool. Get this famous uh, scum and villainy. It's the line. scum and villainy line. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I still, you know what? And here's the thing, right? The speeder bike that. Din Djarin is riding. We already know that's a callback to the one from the Lars, sorry, the, yeah, the Lars uh, farm, the homestead in Attack of the Clones, right? So we yes. automatically assume that it's, it's you know, it's the same model, maybe not the same, mm-hmm. the same bike, but it's the same model that Anakin Skywalker exactly. had rode across exactly. the desert to rescue his mom. But then to have that in the same scene with the pod yeah. racer engine, it's like, whoa, <laughs> Like, yeah, what is yeah, going on there? Yeah. That's very nuanced and layered as well. Yeah. Absolutely. But again, so we're talking technology that's at this point is what, 20, it's 20, 24 years, 26 years old. It's over 20 years old. Yeah. So in my mind, it's not a big stretch to get from pod racer engine to swoop bike and just, it's not been tinkered with and modified and, and cobbled together. All. And I mean if, that's very Star Wars. I mean, if a broken if a broken R five unit can make it from Jawas to to Peli, right? Uh, at the Moss Eisley's, anything is possible. I mean, I look at uh, the Millennium Falcon is the ultimate sort of testament to modification, right? I mean, <laughs> you, it, to see condition it, at the end of Solo, right? Was one of my happiest things. Yeah, ever. yeah, exactly. Skidding in on the beach, <laughs> no landing, literally no landing struts. <laughs> so good. Yeah, so uh, we have this this big scene where they're on the bikes, and I was a little disappointed that like 
that they were able to have a conversation at the same volume that we're having, even though that they were speeding <laughs> yeah. across the desert. But I, I get it. It, it serves the, it serves the uh, script in terms of communicating what's going on to the viewer. I and thought there might be a little uh, cockfighting, like, like, like a little kind of nosing each other forward. Oh like yeah. Competitive racing, but there sort of wasn't, that's okay. But I thought well, I, might be. I thought about that for a second too, and I thought if if he cracked on it, I'm thinking there's oh, yeah. there's no way that that Mando's keeping up. <laughs> That's just it. Yeah, I thought that too. Might so be his the, only advantage. There's a there's a line of dialogue, uh, or a couple lines of dialogue where Cobb Vanth recounts the tale of what happened to Mos Pelago. Really, really good stuff. I love the little snippets of history. Yeah, from the POV of like a. A, a singular person um you really get to see you know you we saw in the in the uh, prequels uh the uh, response from moss Eisley's when the or sorry in the in the um in the special, special edition. edition yeah you get to see the fireworks going off over uh everywhere moss and stuff moss Espa as well and yeah but you get to see you're inside a bar and there's a hologram uh you know Assumedly, it's the news. And faithfully, live. faithfully recreating the uh, the explosion. Yeah, it was a good job too. Yeah, and I did. I did translate what I could out of that orabesh that's sort of like a ticker tape. Roll yeah, around. yeah, yeah. And I just got basically new armored battle station. That's the only things I could make out. Right. So assumedly, it's just the new armored battle station has been destroyed. Or right. Perhaps you know some some sort of version of that. So it's nothing groundbreaking. Yeah. But it was fun to spend a half an hour on. But at the same time, it could be another plot point to revisit later. Like, here's GNN, the Galactic News Network. Yeah, yeah. Like, who's over there broadcasting this for Moss Eisley to see it? It's the same guy that narrated the intro of every episode of The Clone Wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I always thought of those as being like, news flash. <laughs> oh, that's what exactly what it reminded me of. Yeah, very much. You could almost hear his voice, right? <laughs> I think that was Ularan, wasn't it? Same actor. Oh, same voice actor. Yeah, for sure it was. Yeah. yeah. So we get this story about what happened. And so Moss Pelgo, really, the night that the Death Star went up, the mining collective decides that they're going to make a move uh, in the wake of the vacuum that's just been created, and they turned uh, Mos Pelgo into a slave colony literally overnight. And exactly, he references power vacuum, which is exactly what we were talking yes. about in the other episode. Um, that there's, yeah, like Jabba's gone. Waste uh, no time. Gone. There's so, yeah, you get a basically a, a, a union bunch of thugs moving in in uniforms. But he also makes a very a very pointed statement about the occupation was over. So that, I mean, we talked about that earlier too, about like, we didn't know the, the breadth and width of what the empire had left on Tatooine. We just know that Vader's star destroyer showed up in orbit and started looking for droids. Like we didn't realize like, Oh, they were, they were occupied. Yeah, exactly. And that was probably the, the initial. It kind of makes you wonder, did the, did the Imperial presence on Tatooine step up after that encounter when Vader showed up, like, oh, maybe there's something more important going on here. <laughs> well, there's a comic in the the Star Wars release, the new stuff, the new Marvel stuff that's they're considering canon. Yeah, Disney Disney ties where um, Darth Vader, before he knows who the pilot is that destroys the Death Star, he's searching right. for that pilot, and he has Boba Fett track the pilot to Tatooine. Oh wow! 
and the, he interrogates like people that know him uh, trying to get the information out and he actually he gets the name Skywalker and really? he's the one that tells Vader that 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 it's Skywalker and that that sends Vader on a whole other trip of course it would yeah yeah so so there's that could be the point at which and so that happens sort of just after uh, the destruction of the Death Star. So that could be a response to the amount of presence that's on Tatooine right there. Yeah, for sure, Ken. You brought up the uh, whole what Disney is considering canon now, and I just want to touch on this for a second because we we talked about the Star Wars uh, story group uh, in a previous episode, and I was pretty critical of of the story group and how effective they are, or in this case, how maybe ineffective they might be. And I say that because... In my research yesterday, when I was putting my notes together, um, we talk about, and we've talked about this before, Cobb Vanth was introduced in the Wendig novels. Yes. And the Marshal of Freetown. And so the retelling of the story of Mos Pelgo is a retelling of the story of Freetown. So are we saying that Mos Pelgo is Freetown, or is this a straight-up retcon? Well, it's Freetown now. It is now. Yes. Yeah, and I don't. I just think that they don't reference. So to me, that's a bit of a that's a disappointment. Like that's a oh moment for me. It's like oh, you have the story group, but you're inconsistent in how you apply it. I mean, to the to the viewer who's never read anything, who doesn't know anything, it's completely yeah, it's seamless. It's there's no difference, but. You know, for a for an all in fan who's going to consume everything, it leaves a bit of a like a, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I'd have to reread that that chapter and and see if they actually called it Freetown or just referenced it as a free town. Well, there's a big difference between a free town and yes, the name Freetown. Yeah. yeah, the way that I interpret it was Freetown, but yeah, I mean that's I, just I, did, I had to. It's kind of semantic, I guess. Probably. <laughs> especially especially if you're a casual fan, you're probably not going to care that we're going on about this. That's what we do here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so the mining uh, the mining collective shows up, and uh, they look pretty badass. Badass. They look like yeah. they're wearing World War II fighter bombers. Yeah, they jacket. really do. Yeah. They waste the bar full of people. Man. And our, barely uh, escapes. Yeah, our weak way bartender is wounded in the fray, and Cobb Vanth uh, dives behind the bar and, and gets him out the back door. And uh, I guess he decides he's going to take a run at, out to the desert because where else is he going to go? But where not, else is he going to go? But not before he reaches into one of their speeders, which, by the way, very reminiscent of the Lars family speeder. Yes. And we get to see the Comtono make another appearance. It's practically a thing. Now. It is. Normalizing such an obscure piece of <laughs> background is so fantastic. Runs away with a Comtono full of silicax crystals mm-hmm. so silicax crystals i had to look this up because i had no idea what they were and it's really there's not a lot out there on them other than it's just a, a mineral unique to tatooine that has value but i'm maybe i'm drawing i'm, I'm pulling at straws here but i'm gonna go back to star wars knights of the old republic again and Part of that game was this this ability to customize your lightsaber by adding different crystals. Right. And so is it any coincidence that in that game that violet lightsaber crystals could be found in the eastern dune sea? 
That's pretty cool. That's probably just a, a little stroke for maybe you and I. That's me just I'll grasping at straws, yeah. wanting it to fit together. I'm going to just put my shoehorn in there and wedge it a little harder. About this is because you can you can string those things together. Yeah. Like we can both go to bed tonight, and you can firmly believe that that's Anakin's pod racer, and I can firmly believe that it isn't. But it doesn't change anything. We can we can no. still knit our own sweaters together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In my head cannon, guess what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have a lot of head cannons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so back out to the, uh, we finally we get through that sequence, and we arrive at the uh, Sand People encampment, and we have this big. Big scene where we're going to try and figure out how we're going to make this work together. And uh, there's this, like you say, there's that moment of here, drink from the fruit. And there's an, there's an offending of, and you think it's going to come to blows, but Mando once again steps in and, and smooths it over like a diplomat. <laughs> With a flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> what would you just say to them? The same thing I'm telling you. If you don't kill it, it's going to kill us all. What's that line from uh, Attack of the Clones about hostile negotiations? Oh, uh, negotiations were short. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're right about one thing, Master. The, the negotiations were short. <laughs> yes, uh, aggressive negotiations. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Negotiations with a lightsaber. That's it. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah, so we've decided now that the only way that we can do this is the citizenry of Mos Pelgo must work together with the tribe of sand people of which Mando commits the uh, the people without telling Cobb Vanth until it was an afterthought. <laughs> that scene with the uh, with the rocks like almost could be a baby. Yeah, yeah, I thought baby that too. Like... A... And the rocks, such a so, you know, it's the uh, let's draw some circles in the sand, and you guys yeah. go this way, and we'll hide behind this bush. And so <laughs> that was great, actually. Did you like his comment? It doesn't look to scale. <laughs> Yes, I love the scale comment. Like, oh, that no, doesn't look to scale. No, and he it's checks. Right. He's like, uh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, oh no, it's scale. We've only seen the <laughs> head and shoulders him. before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you really get this sense of like, oh, wow, this thing's really, really big. And then we decide that we're going to have to uh, go out there and, and do this. And so we, we ride out on Banthas. And uh, I think, Andy, you pointed this out the other day. What was it? We rode out. Single file. In single file. Hide those numbers. <laughs> to conceal our numbers. Yeah. There's a line. If we can go back a sec. Cause I sure was we can. About some of Vance Cobb's lines. There's a line when they're on the speeder bikes. Yeah. I just noticed it in my notes where he says, you know, he's basically saying, Mando says, you got pretty lucky there. You know, he walked out of that and he said, every once in a while, both suns shine on a womp rat's tail. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Like that's such a Western thing to say and such a Star Wars thing to say. Like, there's a few of his lines in this really, really bring it home for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, it's totally, it's totally good. So we arrive at the cave, uh, the cave of the the crate dragon, and uh, I believe there's a a scene where they they try to bait it. They do. Yeah. So they try to bait it with a with a, a, bantha. a bantha, and I think the logic behind that was. There's a line where it's sleeping and the, the sand people were like, feed it would to make it feed sleep it. more. Yeah. And ironically enough, when he, when he does his like, ar, 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 it doesn't even take the bait. It no, just, it, it eats him. him. Yeah. But that's another callback to Tremors because the bath is just standing there. Yeah. And really that's his right. footsteps are attracted against. So. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. 
And they is it is it this scene where they reference that it's an abandoned Sarlacc pit? Yeah, and then what does so he say? It's no such he thing says, as an abandoned Sarlacc pit. Unless you eat the Sarlacc. Right. So, so for me that also says that there's more than one Sarlacc. And yeah. Jab, Jabba Sarlacc, he called the the almighty Sarlacc. Yeah, Maybe yeah, yeah. One, but that there are like Tatooine is a friggin' dangerous place, man. <laughs> it's the Australia of Star Wars. <laughs> I always thought that uh, forty-seven of the deep. galaxy's most deadly species live on Tatooine. <laughs> this is it. I always thought they dropped a huge ball in the Force Awakens by not making Jakku Tatooine. Tatooine I yeah, did, I don't understand the. Anyway, <laughs> it, pro- it probably came across somebody's table at some point where they it was probably mm-hmm. written that way, and somebody went, "No, no, we can't do that." But no, you really could have. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, would, we mean, digress. Just sprinkle the background with fallen star destroyers. Now it'd be perfect. Yeah, I love the uh, juxtaposition of technology when you see the uh, the miners when they put together their uh, their package of of explosives, you know, uh, pitched up against the sand people with nothing but gaffy sticks. <laughs> well, there's actually a little scene there that's like a, a focus on that. It's like yeah. the, uh, the satchel that the child is in. Yeah, uh, it has a big like greeble on it. It's just it's a it's like a burlap sack, but it's got a big metal. Yep wheel and it like looks like it has mechanical components it does yeah sort of focusing on what you're saying there exactly it was really cool to see the uh the the giant ballista uh, the ballista Mm. rolled out these giant bow weapons and like there's a consistency there where even the bolts resemble the the one end of a gaffy stick oh yeah i thought that's really cool you know continuity stuff but then we see there's a scene in the village where, you know, again, this this indigenous people idea and that they're survivors and there's they touch a little bit on the relationship between the sand people and their banthas. And don't we see this raider is actually doing cleaning the teeth dental work? Yes. Yeah. With his gaffy stick. Like talk about is the gaffy stick arguably not the most versatile tool in star wars <laughs> it's so good that's fantastic yeah so i really love the uh the, that juxtaposition like you get those high tech and then you get this low tech and together we're gonna make it work what else we got here just looking at my notes here oh here's something i wanted to touch on and uh i i went back and i walked on the second viewing and i i kind of i haven't reversed my my opinion on this but i want to talk a little bit about the vocalization of the crate dragon itself so, I mean, let's go back to 1977 and the theatrical release of Star Wars. When Luke gets knocked out by the Sand People and, and Obi-Wan makes his appearance for the first time, he simulates or emulates a, a crate dragon call. And it's a very distinct sound, which I'm not even going to attempt to do, but that scares the Sand People off. Certainly. Fast forward to the 90s and we do the special edition and... Oh my god, like Oh, it was awful. What did they do? Like I get that it was maybe it certainly was more harsh on the ears. But I thought as we were watching this episode, the first vocalization of the Crate Dragon to me sounded exactly like the original theatrical release. I did go back and kind of compare them in in a little bit of detail and I agree. I feel though the more that we saw it and the more that it roared and bellowed and stuff 
I could hear elements of the special edition vocalization in there as well. And I think they've, they kind of settled on a, I don't want to say it was an even mix, but there's, to me, there's, there's elements of both vocal state uh, styles in there. Yeah. They've hybridized it for sure. Yeah. And they've done, I mean, they've done that in the, uh, in the sequels with the, uh, the voiceovers of the Jedi where, especially with the, uh, Obi-Wan character where they yeah. had all three actors. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Mixed into one voice. Right. Right. So that, yeah, there's a precedent there for that for sure. I did, I did notice the initial sound that you heard yeah. from it was the similar to the sound that Obi-Wan makes, uh, if not the sound that Obi-Wan yeah. makes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This episode of Fandom Power is brought to you in part by CollectorsPlatoon.ca. CollectorsPlatoon.ca, organizers of the annual Toronto Collectors Platoon Toy Show. Check out CollectorsPlatoon.ca, the Canadian home of Ian's display accessories, Specializing in action figure stands for figures of all scales. Visit collectorsplatoon.ca today. So let's talk about the uh, taking the dragon down itself and and the the plan. The plan is we're going to plant some mining charges just beneath the surface of the ground. Then we're going to bait the crate dragon out of its cave. And we're going to try and blow it up from its underbelly because, in the words of the sand people, that's the only vulnerable uh, vulnerable part. Like most dragons. Yeah, of course. Hit him in the belly. Yeah, it's very, uh, very tropey in the fantasy world, right? Dragons yeah. on their underside. The soft bellies. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the plan does not go off exactly as we envision it. And uh, we get to think on the fly here and come up with something he goes, else. He goes back in, and then there's a there's a line there that that the man that Dinjarin says. He says, "Dank Ferric," and I was like, "What? Why is that familiar?" It wasn't to me. So, so it's the same thing that the Mithril character says in Episode One after he's been captured by him. Oh, really? He's on the Razor Crest. He says, "Dank Ferric," and I thought it was Thank Ferric. Right. They were referencing some. You know, entity, like maybe there's a deeper religion that we don't know about in Star Wars. So I watched both episodes with captions. Yeah. And it is indeed the phrase dank ferret. And it's almost like a swear word. I was going to say, fast. yeah. It's the yeah. Uh, it's the Star Wars equivalent to frack. Exactly. So, yeah. No, I thought that was super cool. Like when I noticed it, I went, oh, what? Really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna add that to my list of slang. So now it, it's right. It dank ferret goes in with felger carb. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so the plan does not work. <laughs> and it, it start it really starts to go sideways. And then really there's only one way to go. And I wasn't expecting it, but it's super cool to see both Din Djarin and Cobb Vanth uh go on the wing. Oh yes. It, yeah. <laughs> it was it was a, such a great scene of like sort of flying in tandem. And if you yeah. notice uh Vanth, his legs were kind of flailing. Yeah, he was a little, he was a little, he was a little kilter. <laughs> yeah, he lands a little bit rough and yeah. everything. So that's super, super great detail. All of the, uh, and now I, don't, I can't even begin to imagine what was CG in that versus what was wire work, but I, I tend to think that quite a bit of it, especially the landings, looked like wire work. Certainly. And it looked really good. Like really, really good. Yeah, it looked fantastic. I, and I think going back to the gallery episodes, that they they use very little CG when when they can uh, when they can avoid it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm thinking, you know, like set wise, like you, you, it's uneven terrain. 
they're they're coming in hot and and then they get to land on this stuff and i mean the way that they do it there's this that initial landing on the i guess it's the the canyon wall yeah and uh, yeah, yeah vanth kind of hits it takes the the impact with his knees and then tucks and rolls over yes. the crest yes it just looked very credible to me like oh yeah like they're really doing that yeah, hell yeah i very much appreciated that but this is a moment of desperation where it's like <laughs> literally like just keep shooting <laughs> like wait a minute we've already proven that our mining charges are doing nothing what the hell are we doing now I yeah, guess I, we've seen his disruptor rifle just annihilate things and it's not even scratching this. Thing. Yeah. I mean, vaporizing Jawas with those, yeah. whatever <laughs> those charges are. Uh, yeah. To like you say, not even a scratch for a minute. I actually thought they, they were going to try and take a poke at its eye, like as I a, as too, a vulnerable spot. Right. All around it. But that didn't work out. I guess the effectiveness of that in terms of like trying to take it down at this point really was only, distracting it so more people could get out of the line of acid oh that was fantastic yeah it just vaporized some tuscans there i mean well that and that's yeah. important that's important on a couple of reasons because that kind of speaks to the resiliency of beskar you know which we'll get to in a little bit yes but i mean going back then you say about how dissolve i should say dissolved but how much more worn boba fett's armor was mm. we don't know how long he spent in the belly of the sarlacc and what did 3po say digested over a thousand a thousand years or a thousand a generations or whatever is it does it keep you alive longer than you would normally sure just to, to digest but i had a thought about the, the timeline there because i started yeah. thinking about that yeah and so vanth sees the transmission of the uh, Death Star exploding. Yes, the, the mining colony moves right in in real time. Yeah, like same escapes day. Escapes into the desert. Presumably, yeah. he's not more than two days in the desert before he's camp. You know, without water, without food. Sure. Two, maybe three days tops until he's he's ready to collapse. Yep. So, and he's picked up by the Jawas then. Yes. Maybe a month or two has passed since the the Sarlacc pit incident. Yeah. So it feels to me like he got the armor relatively soon after the destruction of the Death Star. So I would really say so. Really close to the end of Return of the Jedi, and therefore he's had it about five years. It it makes sense that, and this is me speculating, I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there's a reference out there that says definitively one way or another, but it only makes sense that when Jabba's sail barge went up, you know, it wouldn't be very long before the Jawas swooped Came in along. to salvage whatever was left of it. Yeah, that's right. So was the explosion enough to kill the Sarlacc. Is that how Boba Fett has lived because it killed it? And he's, his... He's certainly lived in several different ways. Well, yeah. Uh, at least three different ways, depending yeah. on which yeah, comic yeah. or novel you read. I'm curious to know if, though, that that's... So is this going to be another retconning? Of course it will be on some level, but are they going to lean into some of the, the already... Uh, established ways that he survived or are they going to give it us something new? It does feel like they're using the EU and all the other stuff as pools to fish in. Of course. And, I, and so I've said that. There is no legit canon as to his resurrection uh, or not. So I've said that right from the beginning of, of uh, Clone Wars and Rebels that Filoni has, is cherry picking the best parts of the EU and, and the recanonizing them. Yeah, yeah. Or at least the stuff that is striking to him, which just happens to be striking with me too. <laughs> yeah, and then I said that before about him. This guy gets it. Yeah, he very much does. Yeah. So where are we here? Oh yeah. So now we're we're on the wing. We're trying to distract this thing so people can get away. We've got like 
super concentrated acid uh, liquefying people on the ground. And uh, there's a Din Djarin comes up with a quick, hey, maybe there is a way we can do this. And he spots that, that one lonely Bantha that just happens to be loaded for broke. You know, you brought that Still. many mining charges. Why didn't you use them all? But apparently <laughs> the they, that's right. <laughs> they could afford to leave, uh, I don't know what, uh, a couple dozen strapped to the back of this thing. Yeah. At least. Hey, you still got that detonator? Yeah, why? Distract it. <laughs> just, just distract it. Yeah. Well, that, yeah what do you yeah. think we've been doing? Yeah, so uh, Din Djarin basically uh, grabs the Bantha by the reins and uh, tries to get its attention. But not before we get another callback to the classic trilogy where he's like, go look after the child. And then cracks uh, Cobb Vanth in the back, causing a malfunction of the jetpack. And away he goes, <laughs> a la sure. Boba Fett. Alabobafet. He lands hard in that. Scene oh, he does too. too. Actually, <laughs> yeah, but he didn't land in the belly of a sarlacc. So no, that's yeah. true. That's a softer landing, depending on your point of view. So this is the this is where I'm going on about. Like this really speaks to the resiliency of Beskar on some level. Like that uh, in the next scene where we finally get the attention of the the crate dragon and it it bears down on them and quite literally swallows them whole they call back to rebels uh in the uh, first uh season when they encounter the clones and they they take zev fishing and he's the bait yeah yeah or almost uh and then further to that the um the space slug scene in empire with the millennium falcon making it out just in time uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah i once killed a crystal dragon as a halfling after being eaten by it and pulling a tuning fork out of a bag of holding <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah so um mando makes it uh and makes in a very surprising uh turn of events i, I wasn't really expect i didn't know what to expect from this because we'd seen the acid dissolving those people and i'm thinking okay is this like is this like you know we've seen fantasy dragons we've seen them depicted a couple different ways where like it's a chemical reaction in the mouth that produces fire or it's, you know, somewhere deeper within the chest yeah. or the stomach. And it's like, oh, my God, how is he surviving in there? Like, does so that once again, the descriptive audio? Yeah. Specifically says that the substance coming out of it is bile. It's OK. Well, that's some serious bile. Serious bile. <laughs> I was thinking more. It was more in line with the blood of a xenomorph. Yeah, I I literally thought that, and then as I was watching it with the descriptive audio, which, by the way, it was serious. I suggest anybody wants to check that out if you got the patience. Sure. It sounded like the lady was reading from the script. Oh, wow. It was really good. Like, okay. really good. Oh, so it's actually read? Or is, it, read just, or is yeah. it just dialogue and, and on the, the screen? The characters say their dialogue, but yeah. everything else is descriptive, and it sounds oh. like very much like she's reading from the script. Okay. I wonder really. if we get the same effect with subtitles. I've watched it three ways. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I'm going to have to. That's why I got the dank Ferrick from the subtitles. You know that I'm going to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to do one viewing, at least one viewing with the subtitles on. Yeah. <laughs> now that I've, now that I know that. It was, I was actually, the, the audio description was much more pleasant than I thought. I thought I'm going to force myself to watch this in five seconds. And I was like, wow, <laughs> wow, wow. There's so much yeah. detail that she's uh, exposing. I feel like it's going to see the movie. It, something that I've always enjoyed is like going to see the movie 
and then reading the novelization of that movie afterwards, mm -hmm. right? It, mm -hmm. It's just that added depth to it. So the second display of the uh, the tuning fork aspect of the 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 rifle, where he right. he shocked it from the inside to open its mouth. Uh, and Mando makes his escape kind of like the Millennium Falcon from the space slug. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 Uh, and the explosion. Yeah. Like the, the scene. Is, yeah. Uh, it reminded me of the first death star explosion, the original one before they added the effect to it. Exactly. Yeah. The scale, like how far they had to pull back in the shot to get the entire Canyon floor yeah. and the shock wave and everything was such a great angle, such a great scene. It really did give you, uh, a, a big experience and, and that's what I was thinking like this season has amped it up in terms of its scale oh big time painting with much broader thicker strokes and it's it's that that scene let me know like oh we're operating on a much larger scale yeah 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 big time yeah so again big explosion and it's almost it's that you know culmination of like Endor and everybody's we're all cheering now Yay, it's over. We did it. <laughs> we get to this point in the, in the episode where there's a tonal change. And now we get to see some more of the, the, the cultural stuff with the sand people. And there's this scene where they are now harvesting the, uh, the crate dragon and what's left of it. We'll work for food. Yeah. And uh cool deep cut here, but... Lo and behold, if the one guy doesn't cut in, and what does he pull out? A crate dragon pearl. Amazing. So, uh, the casual viewer, I you know, may think, "What is that? An egg?" That was my first thought. Yeah, is that an egg? And we're gonna like, we're gonna, we're gonna hatch it and have our own baby dragon. Yeah. No, Game crate throne Star Wars crate dragon pearl. Yes, sir. Which is kind of cool because there's another throwback to the old EU where crate dragon pearls. They exist on the same reason why birds swallow rocks, right? To help in digestion. That's that is the the biological purpose for them. But again, they're these highly prized stones because in the old EU, crate dragon pearls um, were highly coveted for their for their effect on a lightsaber. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. But the size of that thing, I mean, it was like oh. the size of a basketball, <laughs> much yeah. bigger than I had actually thought. But again, when you see the size of the dragon on screen, you kind of go, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And how, how rare are they if you need like 35 people and two people in Mandalorian armor to take one down? Yeah. This harvesting scene to me really felt like, as I'm sitting there watching it, I immediately, all I could conjure up in my head was this 1940s, wailing footage you know the old black and white totally and totally. that's to me exactly what it looked like it's like Some wow the tuscan robes were just soaked with yeah. blood at the bottom just they were right inside it and they're uh, they're using specialized tools to you know strip the carcass from the yeah. the flesh and to cut the meat from the bone and even Din Djarin gets away with a sizable chunk. Sizable chunk. Yeah, like half a half a side of beef there yeah, <laughs> almost yeah, to yeah, strap yeah. to the speeder bike, right? Yeah, and so the uh, there's a moment where there's a big thank you from Cobb Vanth, and he hands the armor over. and True to his word. Yeah, very true to his word. There's um, points that I thought there might be a double cross at the end, but 
it never occurred to me at that point. Like I feel like they had established that whole, you know, they're, they're both honorable guys in their own way. And I, I really, I really got that from them. Even if they're both have a, they both have an element of cockiness, but it's, they're not the same. No, definitely different. So they've, you know, they kind of, there's some well-wishing. It's like, I hope we, our paths cross again. And which to me is almost like saying, I'll see you in a few episodes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think we will. And then we have the final moment where the, they, the ride off into the sunset, quite literally, as we see the twin sons of Tatooine in the background and the speeder is racing across the desert and it's a low light scene. And we're given treated to this image of the the bald robed yeah. figure who's just standing there watching with his macro my binoculars w- my wife turned it off like we watched it separately because of yeah. work schedule yeah she turned it off when he was riding into the sunset oh it's and over I now texted her i was like oh my god <laughs> and i spoiled the end because she had seen the last 30 seconds <laughs> i was like that's on you yeah so uh we get greeted to this uh, this individual turns towards the camera to walk away from the ridge, and it's Tamura Morrison. He's got a so, gaffy stick on his back. Gaffy stick. Cloak. He's got a slug thrower rifle. Oh. And Sporting's major scarring. Yes. Major scarring. Oh. He's very, very much appointed, very much like a Tuscan Raider. Like you, you're almost left with the. He's living off the land somewhere, somehow. And it goes back to the timeline that I was talking about. Yeah. Where he, you know, if Cobb Vanth has had the armor for five years, then Boba, if that's Boba, and yeah. I, think, I think we can assume that it is, has been wandering well, the desert for five years and he's completely fine. Yeah. 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 So, really, I mean, that is the episode uh, front to back. I really want to get into that sort of where it's leaving us now and what we're thinking going ahead. And I'm just going to go and touch back on when we did the, the season one recap and we were speculating, you know, could, could he be, could he be Rex? Mm. I went back after I finished this episode and I, I just, I, I pulled up the gunslinger because I wanted to just take a look at the end again to see the, the boots walking into the scene. And at this point, I'm pretty convinced that it was the same figure that Tamira Morrison is playing. And Agreed. You know, I'm going to go out and say right now, it's Boba Fett. I mean, I can't imagine him being anybody else at this point. It would be a super, super crazy twist if it wasn't. But... Here's the other thing. When we did the 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 previous episode and and we were talking about what might that look like and you know this the idea of Rex and Boba Fett having this this uh face to face where you know Rex would be able to to relate to him about being a clone brother. Mm. Now you've got this in my mind I, I'm already envisioning what is this meeting going to look like between uh Dinjarin and Boba Fett, and what's that going to look like? Because this, in my mind, is a very different Boba Fett than the last time we saw him on the skiff, right? I mean, if he's been alive this whole time, and you can't tell me, like, because uh, Gore Koresh is like, yeah, he's in Mos Pelgo. If he's been native to or local to Mos Pelgo for the last five years, he clearly has known that his armor is rolling around with Cobb Vanth. 
So what's happened in his life to put him on a allow different allow him to have the armor? Right. I, and I sort of I sort of was thinking that maybe he's been trying to find the armor or thought it was a foregone conclusion that the armor never existed, but then again, why wouldn't he leave Tatooine if that was the case? But then yeah. I, I, I got the the impression that like he's on that ridge. And maybe yep. it's just because they have to do some crafty pedaling while they're writing. Sure. But that he now he knows like he's gonna go to the village in the next couple of episodes, I think, and he's going to interrogate Cobb Van. And Oh, know, that's entirely that, possible, yeah. I think that that's like maybe he just didn't know where to look because I'm pretty sure that Gore was was referencing the marshal. You think so? And yeah. You're probably right now that you say that. But then again, if a guy on a planet far, far away knew that there was a Mandalorian armor in a place on Tatooine, yeah, uh, why wouldn't Boba, who's there, know? Well, so this is it. And, and and we know the writers aren't crap, so it's going to be great. Yeah, the reveal on that is going to be something. It's going to be great. But I agree. I'm convinced that, that Tamira is playing Boba Fett. Yeah. And I wouldn't be pissed off if they CG'd him playing Rex. No, nope. not at all. Not at all. Or just shoot it, composite together where they can film exactly. them and then just exactly. plate, plate them together. Yeah, it for sure. Again. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm just going to go back and, and reiterate that uh, Gunslinger, no longer my favorite episode. It's the Marshall. It's so good. Season one, no longer my favorite season. <laughs> <laughs> all of that and a bag of chips. Oh, man. Predictions for episode two. Any idea? I don't know if we'll get back into this story right away. I think they might uh, let it ruminate a little. Maybe. We might get some deeper cuts. Uh, We didn't talk about one of the casting calls. We talked about our speculations at the end of the last episode, but that that Bo-Katan has been cast. Yeah, Katie Sackhoff. Yes. And so, um, and he's, as far as he's concerned, he's found the Mandalorian he was looking for. So he may move on to other Mandalorians, which puts us on a trajectory for Bo-Katan and a trajectory for Sabine Wren, and therefore a trajectory with Ahsoka Tano. And I think we're just going to get amazing goodness is going to be peeled back. And in seven episodes, it's going to hit us fairly rapidly. Yeah. I'm a little bit curious, though. We've already... So he's already leaned into an underworld connection just to get a rumor about a possible location for another Mandalorian. So is he going to just magically pull out another underworld connection to put him onto the next clue? Because if this is his only clue, it's now a dead end. Well, and he certainly, he certainly has connect. Like he, he, he is an underworld. Oh, he himself. Yeah, of course. Of course. That also leads me to the other thought that like, how long has he been a bounty hunter for? And if he's been a bounty hunter who for knows? five or more years, he probably knows who Boba Fett is because Boba Fett is the most notorious bounty hunter in the galaxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wouldn't, you know what I mean? He may be playing it cool and recognizes the armor. Yeah, because he doesn't make any overt reference to that's Boba Fett. And no. going back to the armor itself, like, Yes, it's it's considerably more weathered, but uh, you notice that they went out of their way to make sure that the image of the mythosaur was completely intact. 
absolutely yeah the, uh, the little like the uh the flare crest on the on the uh, oh yeah other, other chest yeah. The yeah 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 the fe- i don't even know what that's supposed to is that supposed to be like an image of a braided wookie tail or braided wookie hair sure. what I'll, is that i have a windbreaker from that photo i sent you i'll take a big close-up yeah. of that patch okay. and send it to you so you can take a look curious to know what that's supposed to represent you think i'd know this by now but still <laughs> well that was episode one in a nutshell and uh or i should say chapter nine uh, episode that, one of that excited two. me too that we're we're just picking excited me too. picking up the <laughs> the the numerical order yes and, and not just such co- yeah not you know this episode one chapter yeah one, yeah season yeah two, like you know so it, that led me to be like we're watching one great, whole story story yeah talking about story for a second and just sort of we talked a bit about how the beats and how the timing and the pacing was very much uh, animated uh, or it leaned into the animation style. This episode felt completely like a film, like a full feature film to me. It, it had the, you know, there, it felt like this, the, the standard three act play. Uh, they, I feel like they were dipping their toe in, in experimental waters with the first season. And then I think they, they realized like they, they can do a lot of stuff. Yeah, uh, and the, a long certainly the longest episode we've seen yet, I believe. Fifty-four minutes. Yep. And um, yeah, I, I agree. It had it had a nice cohesive structure. It felt like a western film. It had a it had a, a nice conclusion. Uh, it left us wanting a sequel. Big time. Um, yeah, these guys these guys are remarkably good at knowing exactly what I want. <laughs> so when we left season one. We had uh, both Grief Karga and um, Cara Dune are still on Navarro, and so is Moff Gideon. So any idea what's going to happen when we meet up with those characters again? Uh, I can only think. Um, certainly the, the Imperial guy is going to be very upset with having sort of lost... The child. Exactly, when it was yeah. in his grasp. So he's going to be... He's going to double down, I think, on on finding that. And uh, certainly, we've seen grief and Kara in the in the trailers with Mando, yeah, and with, without the child, yeah, in those scenes. That's right. And I, there was one point I wanted to make that there was very little of the child in this episode. Yeah, and he I was he was there, but super good because he's still the main plot point. He's still quested to find the people of the child and reunite him. The cutest MacGuffin in cinematic history, exactly. But we're reminded. That this is the Mandalorian show and not the Baby Yoda show. That's no, it's so true. And I think that was super strong for me, actually. Yeah, I feel like the there is a finite number of stories to be told, and that when or if we get to the point where this quest of of returning the child, and maybe they never get there. Maybe the 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 end result is there is nobody to go home to because Luke Skywalker is now in, in exile or wherever he's supposed to be at this point in history. Right. And, and maybe, if I, see, if I put myself in, 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 in that world, yeah. and I'm Din Djarin and I know a thing or two about galactic history, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Might I not seek out Luke Skywalker to put this child with him? If I know anything about Jedi, at all? I can't see the, the show. I going. Yeah, I wouldn't do that in the show, but in, in my head, that would be, the character's mentality oh no no i was gonna go the other way with that i mean oh, really? given given the importance of those i know we touched on it in, in the big the big star wars episode where we talked about you know it seems like there's a you know less than less than a dozen people 
who the fate of the entire galaxy rests in. Well, that that does kind of lend itself to a, a note of fame, and certainly word's going to travel, right? I mean, if the mining collective can show up, you know, the same night that the Death Star is blown up, people by this time gotta know who Luke Skywalker is, and that they've there's rumblings of the Jedi. You in, know, in the comic, and I, if you get a chance to read any of the Star Wars comics, well, yeah. they're, they're amazing and deep. There's a scene where a guy in a in a an orange X-wing uh, outfit in a bar, yeah. blonde hair, has got his feet up on the bar, and he's bragging about how he's Luke Skywalker, <laughs> and that he just blew up the Death Star. Yeah, and Darth Vader comes in and kills him, and basically <laughs> says, "I know that's not Luke Skywalker." Yeah. But this is a message to anybody who even wants to frig around. <laughs> oh, it's like in, uh, what was it, uh, Dark Knight Rises. Exactly. All the guys out there, uh, I'm not wearing a hockey mask. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so it lends itself to the idea that, yeah, people know who Luke Skywalker is. And they know what he's done. Yeah. And they're like, this guy's trying to impersonate him to get broads. <laughs> I don't see how, I mean, they did it in uh, Clone Wars. They did it again in Rebels. Uh, in in the limited fashion where those characters and those stories, they did cross over and they did overlap with classic trilogy elements and prequel trilogy elements. And I can't see, I can't see the Mandalorian not doing that in some way. And it was just enough. It wasn't overwhelming. No. You added up all of Vader's screen time in Rebels, it's minute. Yes, absolutely. But it was enough to keep you reminded that you were in this world, that this guy is still the major threat so yeah and then you know like i've heard that um the indiana jones 5 is delayed uh because they're trying to perfect the de-aging face technology oh really and so that you know (laughs) this it's not a big stretch to throw mark hamill in an episode and have him de-aged and have it look crisp well i mean that's exactly what they did in the rise of skywalker it's true so i mean the the precedent is there and i mean we all bought into Rogue One when uh, when they digitally inserted Carrie Fisher's face uh, in Rogue One. And yeah, we knew it was CGI. And yeah, maybe it wasn't as good as, as Tarkin, but there's enough... To me, if you do it well enough, the buy-in is relatively easy. I have to cite the Captain Marvel uh, movie or Miss Marvel movie yeah. um, as being the, the hotbed of that because for for over half that film... Coulson and uh, Fury are both de-aged. And yeah, they are. Seamless. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was fantastic. Yeah. And again, I mean, look who's at the helm. I mean, you've got all that Disney money. This so uh, hopefully they're willing to spend, and certainly they are. I mean, this is the flagship show of the streaming service. Yeah, so. and they, uh, with all the plans they've announced uh, about the future episodes of different you know, different properties absolutely. in terms of Star Wars, this d- looks like they're going all in in this format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, my friends, I think uh, we can call that a solid, uh, a solid review. Yeah, it covers it. Watch it now. Yeah, <laughs> watch it again. Watch it if you haven't seen it. <laughs> watch it if you have, credits because watch it if more, you have seen it. There's more great concept art in there. Yeah, yeah. If you're a fan of the uh, those closing credits. Uh, that, that is maintained throughout and it, and it looks just as good as it did before. Well, that's it for me. That's episode one, chapter nine, the Marshall. And, uh, I guess if you like what we're doing, come see us next week because we're going to do it again with chapter 10. All right, gentlemen, 
as always, it was a wonderful time. Let's do it again, and we will talk soon. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Fandom Power. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be talking about another one of your favorite fandoms. Fandom Power is a Sawcast production. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast, but you didn't know where to begin? Maybe you'd like to try podcasting without having to invest in any recording equipment. Do you have an idea for a show, but you're not sure how to develop it? Let Sawcast Productions take care of all of that, so you can focus on what it is you want to say. Sawcast Productions offers podcasting solutions ranging from recording and basic editing, to fully produced episodes complete with all the audio embellishments of a broadcast quality show. When your show is ready... Sawcast Productions can distribute it too. Contact us online today. So, what do you want to say? <laughs>